Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're talking to Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy of Chaosium about the new edition of Masks of Nalathotep. But first, the news. And speaking of masks, uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society are doing another one of their dark adventure radio theatre adaptations, this time of Masks of Nyarlathotep. Last year at Necronomicon, we did go and see their adaptation of Brotherhood of the Beast, which was absolutely magnificent. Oh, it's great. They did a fantastic job, yeah. <laughs> Complete with audience participation of choose which ending you want. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what they do with the new edition of Masks and how many of the new bits we've put in feature in the new production. It'll be very uh, exciting to see. One of the things I saw on the promotion for it, apparently the deluxe package has a load of props. Oh, they do yeah. tend to put yeah. a lot of props in with their productions. They're yeah. well worth getting the actual yeah. CD with the actual handouts. It's like a hundred or more yeah. from what they're I, saying. And it's not just handouts. I mean, it's like physical artefacts as well. Should be rather exciting. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, if it's coming from the HPLA chest, the quality is going to be second to none. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week our word is antiquarian. It's both a noun and an adjective. First of all, as a noun. One. One who studies, collects or deals in antiquities. As an adjective. One. Of or relating to antiquarians or to the study or collecting of antiquities. Two, dealing in or having to do with old or rare books. So you could indeed count yourselves an antiquarian, I think, Matt. Hey. You have collections of old books. Yeah, yeah, I've got plenty. Not, not just RPGs as well. Indeed. Yeah, I'm not sure that you could be an antiquarian collector of RPGs. I mean, they've no. only been around since the early 70s, and as I'm sure you'll tell us, Paul, old about, well, I, I thought you were about to say that 70s were cutting edge, Paul. Well, oh, they are, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what are you talking about? That's that's like <laughs> modern day. But I was, I was thinking more to the rare aspect, because there are some RPG books out there where there are only a handful of copies made. Yeah. But it doesn't relate to uniqueness. I think it relates to age more so, I would say, wouldn't you? Well, you said old or rare books. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I personally, I, I, I'd focus more on the old aspect of it because the clues in the name. Right, in fifty years' time, then I'll count the Temple Edition as making me an antiquarian. <laughs> and this is a definitive occupation in Call of Cthulhu. There are a number of occupations that are identified as being typically Lovecraftian, and this has to be near the top of the list, doesn't it? You mean it's near the top of the list just because it begins with an A? <laughs> Well, there is that, but also it portrays Lovecraft's love of the old, doesn't it? He was very into stuff from 100 years and before 17th and 18th century, and antiquarians would be into that stuff, so he allowed him to explore that, I think. And on the Lovecraftometer, it appears 21 times in his fiction as antiquarian, seven as antiquarians, and two other times as antiquarianism. There's a word to conjure with. Yeah, just trips off the tongue. Well, let's take a look then at how Lovecraft used the word antiquarian. From the shunned house. Only the notebooks of my antiquarian uncle, Dr. Elihu Whipple, revealed to me at length the darker, vaguer surmises which formed an undercurrent of folklore among old-time servants and humble folk. Surmises which never travelled far and which were largely forgotten when Providence grew to be a metropolis with a shifting modern population. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Important sections of Charles Ward's store of mental images, mainly those touching modern times and his own personal life, had been unaccountably expunged, whilst all the massed antiquarianism of his youth had welled up from some profound subconsciousness to engulf the contemporary and the individual. And from the shadow of Rinsmouth. I never heard of Innsmouth till the day before I saw it for the first and, so far, last time. I was celebrating my coming of age by a tour of New England, 
sightseeing, antiquarian, and genealogical, and had planned to go directly from ancient Newburyport to Arkham, whence my mother's family was derived. And now on to our main topic, Masks of Nalathotep. Well, Paul and I recorded a chat with Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy a little while back. Unfortunately, we had to do it during working hours for their availability, which meant that Matt couldn't join us. We broke the discussion down into two halves. The first half, which you'll get in this episode, is largely spoiler-free. We've tried to make this safe to listen to if you plan to play Masks at some stage. Next episode, we'll go into spoilers uh, in quite some detail. And now over to our recording of a conversation with Mike and Lynn. Okay, so we're joined by Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy of Chaosium. Welcome, Lynn and Mike. Hello. Hi. And surprise, surprise, we're going to talk about Mars of Nalathotep. Well, before we get into the nuts and bolts of, of what to expect from the new edition, the four of us have had different experiences with Masks of Nialathotep. I mean, particularly for each of the rest of you, I, what kind of background did you have with the campaign? What did you come to, to this project with in terms of experience? Do you want to kick off, Mike? Sure. I played as a player through Masks when it was first released, the, uh, the original box set with a group of school friends. We played every Friday night, didn't finish the campaign. We got to the last chapter, but we died horribly before actually getting to a conclusion. And then I've run it probably a couple of times over the over the intervening how many years, and uh, I've read it numerous times. So I guess um, I'm fairly well versed in the campaign in terms of playing it and running it and you know experiencing it uh, you know on either side of the uh, the keeper's screen in that regard. And what about yourself Lynn? I'd never played it. I'd never run it. I had literally read the London chapter and the Cairo chapter to make sure that I wasn't treading on any toes when I was writing Shadows of Atlantis. And that was pretty much it. I mean obviously I knew of it. It's it's sufficiently legendary that you couldn't do Call of Cthulhu and not have heard of it, but I didn't really have a great deal of personal experience with it when I started on this. How about you, Paul? So I played it about 20 years ago with some friends, and the guy that was running it did a fantastic job. He left through about chapter three or something like that. The third chapter we did, he moved away, so I was kind of left hanging. Uh, and then some years later, uh, Matt Knott ran it for us, um, and uh, I was in the campaign with Matt Sanderson and myself and a few others. And yeah, that was that was really good. I'd never run it myself, but yeah, playing it, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I'd run it twice, but uh, and this was back in the mid '80s when it first came out, and I ran it once for uh, my group at university, and then once for a group of friends in New York, and uh, so it, it had been uh, over thirty years since I even looked at it. And again, this was the original box set, so um, we, without going into too many details, there was an additional chapter which was added to subsequent editions, which had been cut out from the box set. And so obviously, I had no experience with that chapter. And Lynn, you made a point there that it was kind of legendary. I think that is a good word for it. I mean, why is that? Is it just, do we think that's just because it was the first big campaign for Call of Cthulhu? Is that right, Mike? It was the first big published campaign? Well, technically not really. I mean, Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth is a world-spanning campaign, which is, you know, the first campaign written for Call of Cthulhu. Uh, obviously, Masks is larger. Uh, it's more detailed, but I think uh, Masks is recognised as being the first Call of Cthulhu campaign that was um, almost universally positively received and garnered, you know, uh, exceptional reviews at the time of its release. Whether it's just the timing or, or whether the content of Masks is to do with this, probably a bit of both, um, it certainly struck a chord with players and kind of evolved and... and became this kind of, quotes, legendary campaign. And, and, and I guess it kind of really crystallised what a Call of Cthulhu campaign could look like. Um, and, and so I think it became a kind of the popular shorthand for the, you know, for the, uh, the key campaign for Call of Cthulhu in that way. Well, I don't think it was just Call of Cthulhu. I Obviously, there had been campaigns published before Masks, but I think in a lot of ways, Masks set the template and the expectations uh, for a long time for what a role-playing campaign could and should be. 
you know, well, indeed, it was held up in re and reviews of the time were saying that uh, this is um, not only the best Call of Cthulhu campaign, but also the best campaign for a role-playing game, full stop, you know, which obviously transcended out of the actual game system. Yeah, and, and that reputation has lasted to the modern day, which, uh, considering that it's, you know, what, 33 years or 34 years almost since it was published, that, that's remarkable. Coming to it afresh, Lynn, would you have figured that it was going to be such a you know legendary campaign? You're reading it as a as a as a new reader, if you like. Did it feel like you've seen loads of things like that since? It felt very much of its time reading it. Obviously, the role playing field has changed massively in the 33, 34 years since that was published. Um, so, although I could see why it was beloved and legendary. There was a lot about it that, obviously, that was the way that you did things then, but you wouldn't necessarily do the same way now. There were an awful lot of assumptions made about what players would do. There were some fairly large leaps in logic as to how you got to various places. There was no denying the fact that there was this rich, involving detailed campaign in there that people would get an awful lot out of and that certainly at the time they probably hadn't seen anything like it i mean obviously 30 years down the line there have been a lot of other gigantic world-spanning campaigns for all sorts of different systems but i suspect that masks had a massive influence on everything that came after it in that respect so coming to the new edition, Mike, obviously you wanted to have it updated for 7th edition, the new edition of Call of Cthulhu. What were your other beginning thoughts? You know, what, what did you want to see at the end of this project? I want to see the campaign, given its kind of um, due place in the kind of Call of Cthulhu canon, uh, in the fact that, you know, the last edition was the 5th edition of the game, which was the old limited hardback, uh, although there was a few soft covers done back in 2010. And effectively, you know, it, whilst that hardback remained in print in small numbers, it wasn't widely available in that sense. I think it was only a, you know, a direct uh, from Kersian purchase. Um, so it wasn't really out there on the, on the shelves of gaming stores and whatnot. The, you know, there's there a real need to kind of, you know, bring the campaign back because, you know, because it has a currency, it, is a, it has a great awareness across the, uh, the community, uh, whether, whether old players who have, you know, played it before and, and, you know, want to pick it up again, as well as, you know, new people who have, you know, and obviously with Call of Cthulhu 7th edition, the revamp of the system has, has brought in uh, a lot of new players into playing the game. And so, you know, wanting to put masks back into you know the hands of people and people coming into the game afresh uh, just seemed like the you know the logical thing to do uh, but in terms of a shape you know I just wanted the campaign to be as sharp and as um, user friendly for a keeper as possible and to be as you know joined up and connected and to uh, ensure that some of the kind of uh, little gaps in logic or, or little dead ends that may have you know may have been uh, there in the original could be you know enhanced. So what I wanted was the same campaign. I didn't want to write a new campaign. I wanted the same campaign, but uh, refined and enhanced. So there would be some more layers or depth or possibilities within the campaign presented, you know, to give players, a, you know, a, a campaign that's, you know, as good as it can be. So without giving any spoilers in this section, at least, perhaps we should address how we approached the campaign and, and what some of the things are that we changed some of the sort of high level things so i'm thinking about the the gender balance and so on we've kind of swung that a little bit lynn do you want to say something about that <laughs> yeah because I've, I've got my original notes because when we started this project because not having read it all before i sat down and i did my research scientist thing and i sat down i read it through i got my notes and i literally have it these this is from when we first kicked it all off it's like so in the entire book there are 14 named women characters of those seven are there purely to be victims Three of them are evil and ruthless, with no other character-defining traits, and four of them are neutral, and two of those are probably going to end up as victims as well. So there were 91 named characters, and only 14 of them were women. 
So yes, there was sort of like a, almost a six to one male to female ratio of characters in the book. Yeah, we needed to do something about that. Have you reassessed it since the new edition? <laughs> I haven't actually. <laughs> oh, okay. It's a lot better. It's not parody. That would have been really hard to do. But yeah, it's a lot better than that. Your personal approach with this, I mean, did that involve then going through and adding more women characters or did it involve um, changing the gender of existing NPCs? Or, uh, how, how, did you, how did you go about it? Well, we did, didn't we? I mean, we, we sort of sat down and looked at some of the big NPCs and thought, well, you know, is there any particular reason for them to be male? Could they be female? Could we change um, some of the women so that there's more to them than just being there to be sacrificed horribly at some point? Obviously, uh, one of the big female characters that was there is Nitocris. So we've played with her a little bit. Obviously, we'll not say too much about that because that's spoiler territory. But yeah, there are several of the NPCs have now become female. There are, I think, a few more female NPCs have been popped in there as well, sort of newer ones. Um, Just to try and make it a bit more diverse... And sort of like have it so that it's not just entirely sort of white male characters telling you how to do things. And yeah, I mean, and also, you know, the roles of some of the uh, the female characters, uh, non-player characters in the campaign, um, I think Lynn kind of touched on. So they weren't either all victims, they weren't all information repositories, but there was a mix and, and a mix of agendas as well. So some are clearly, you know, allies, some are clearly neutral and some are clearly villains, but but equally to try and ensure that there's shades of grey even within those roles. And you know, I'm thinking of one, without spoiling it, a character that, that originally was a male character that became a female character and now has a much greater depth of kind of background and, and motivation in the campaign as to what they're trying to achieve, which may be at odds in terms of you know what her personal goals may be, may be sometimes at odds with who she would consider her allies are. So um, and using that to play within the campaign, so the, the actual player characters can can maybe exploit that. So to, again, to try and layer some depth into the characters as well was important. And it's a surprisingly easy thing to do. You just read through it and think, well, does as Lynn says, does this character need to be white and male? And it's like, well, not really. So you just change that. And sometimes I find myself looking at the the other characteristics, and a part of me is almost surprised but a part of me is like well that's kind of obvious that you don't need to change the rest of the stuff you know their characteristics their their personality doesn't have to change just because you've changed it from male to female necessarily no of course not no but you know there's a part of my brain that sort of wants to change that and i'm kind of conscious of you know oh actually i don't need to you know what can i say life's a struggle You touched upon the issue of race there as well, Paul, that perhaps attitudes towards race in, in what, what, what will go into a published role-playing game supplement have changed an awful lot over the last 35 years. I take it, you know, we, we all agree that, you know, when we were going through the text, we basically looked for ways of trying to bring those attitudes up to date. Definitely. Yeah, I think, I mean, the key word here is balance, isn't it? Let's not forget, you know, the original Masks is a very pulpy campaign. You know, it, it, it plays off uh, the pulp genre very much so. And that and that pulp genre of the 1930s America, you know, I think, it's, you know, we all know that um, many of the villains would be, you know, non-American, you know, foreign people were often the villains in pulp stories. Not always, but, uh, you know, a large proportion. Uh, Mass kind of carried that kind of theme across to some degree. And so, you know, looking through the text and in, in terms of revising it was ensuring that, you know, there is a balance, there is an ethnic balance in terms of representation across the board. So, you know, that, including, you know, white European and Americans, you know, there are good and bad, just as, just as there are across the other ethnicities. And ensuring that balance is represented. So, you know, not all, you know, the natives of this particular country are cultists, you know, there, there are normal people there and good people and uh, allies as well as villains, you know, across all the communities. So ensuring that balance was represented, uh, I think, was reasonable and fair and historically accurate as well. Yes. Yeah, because that's the thing. We're writing a scenario that's set in a time that was horrendously racist. We're more aware of that. 
now we're more prepared to talk about it openly and deal with it. It was the big debate that came up the other week about the Simpsons and Apu being, you know, Apu being deeply racist. And the Simpsons creators kind of brushed it off and went, oh, you're just being offended for no reason. And then somebody put up the screen cap that Warner Brothers put up in cinemas whenever they show the old Warner Brothers cartoons. And it basically says something along the lines of, yes, these are horrendous in terms of racial and sexual portrayal, but they're of their time. And if we take that out, if we pretend it's not there, then we're pretending that that didn't happen. And that's not right. We have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge it that that it isn't how things are now. But just pretending it didn't happen is as bad as it actually happening, you know. So yeah, it's what Mike said. You have to acknowledge it. You have to look at it. You can't pretend it wasn't there in the historical terms, but you have to give people a way of dealing with that within their own groups because people might not want to deal with it while they're playing. Some of our players will have to deal with that every day of their lives and they may want an escape from that in their gaming. So that was something that we did put in was the fact that, look, this is the racism. Yes, it's there. It's inherent in the system. If you want to deal with it good, make sure that your players are happy with dealing with it. If you don't want to deal with it, that's fine too. Yeah, I would have thought probably the most difficult chapter from that point of view uh, would be one that you tackled, Paul, which would be, you know, Colonial Kenya. Uh, Were there any particular challenges that you you hit there with representing the, the realities of that place and time? Yeah, I think some of the things that Lynn just highlighted, it's how to deal with that level of kind of institutionalized racism that was there at the time with the divisions of different ethnicities in different just not just social class, but in geographical locations within, you know, one town in a divided town. I don't really want to ignore it, but at the same time, you don't really want to make it the the main focus of the game. And it's it's how to strike a balance there. It's, it's really hard. So I think, as Lynn says, we've got to kind of address the keeper and the players and put it to them to say, you know, how much do you want to focus on this? Not how much you want to focus on it, but how you want to address it in your game. Uh, if you want to entirely ignore it and just play it without that, then play it without that. But if you want to try and simulate that kind of environment in your game, go for it. But but then again, you know, we don't want to simulate racist player characters either. Yeah. But it's really giving an in to some players to say, oh, but my character would be racist. You know, they would use these words. And it's like, I don't think anybody wants that. No, I think it's important because I think uh, Lynn touched on this as well. I think in the... Um in the guidance within within masks, we put the kind of the point to say, you know, this is an historically set campaign where racism is an historical fact. However, you should discuss with the group before playing, you know, how that is portrayed within the campaign. You know, agree as a group what is comfortable for the group and what is a preference. And then, you know, use that as your guideline as you then play through the campaign. Uh, you know, as with anything that's... Um, you know, problematic issues, the, the, the best result is always to, to discuss them up front uh, and, and get a consensus of what is agreeable to everyone playing in the game. Because at the end of the day, it's a game and meant to be fun. So whilst, you know, the depiction of historical realities is sometimes a key factor in certain, you know, certainly in Call of Cthulhu, whether it's racism or just horrific um, historical events, all can have impacts on people discussing up front what what is the level of the game for the group is um you know is 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 often important also you know looking back to the old edition of masks and other chaosium books having met a number of chaosium writers and so on and read the books i think those people who wrote those books when we look at them today we might make some criticisms of them but i think they were well-meaning i think the four of us are also well-meaning, but it'd be interesting to see in 30 years if people are <laughs> criticising what we've done for things that we're totally blind to now that we think are totally sound and correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, obviously, social awareness has come on hugely in 30 years. But when it comes down to it, we are four white English people who have a very different experience to others who aren't white. So... Yeah, we probably have got some of it wrong. 
you know, we're all based in England and uh, whilst some, you know, we've all travelled around the world to different places, we haven't necessarily all spent time or lived for any point of time in all of the campaign locations. So, you know, for instance, Australia, uh, once, you know, Paul uh, had done, you know, your, your draft of Australia, we asked a couple of Australians to, you know, to actually read it and check, you know, fact check. We haven't gone kind of off the range in that respect. Uh, and, the, and the same for New York and Harlem, um, we uh, we got in touch with Chris Spivey and um, Chris uh, had a look over it and made some helpful suggestions and comments, uh, which we you know, which we then kind of looked to uh, incorporate within the uh, portrayal of New York and Harlem specifically. Th- those are two examples in that respect. Yeah, actually, actually, similarly with the new Peru chapter, we did send that off to you know someone who was born and brought up in Peru to to get that a once over. Uh, again, for much the same reason. So yeah, I don't doubt we've messed up in some places, but we have tried. <laughs> we've done our best, hopefully. <laughs> so Mike, one thing that you touched on earlier was the fact that part of bringing the book up to date was explaining it better to perhaps less experienced keepers. So what what did this process actually involve from your point of view? Given Mask's legendary status among the community... You often read comments on forums that, you know, I'm looking to start doing that. I've just picked up Call of Cthulhu. I'm really into it. We've run The Haunting. uh, And now I'm looking to run masks for my group. And nine out of ten times you'll see posters responding by saying, oh, it's a great idea, but maybe you should run a few other scenarios before getting into masks because it's such a complex and big beast that you can be unwieldy and a bit intimidating, Um, which, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with. With a new edition, I wanted to try and make it as user-friendly as possible, that, that it wasn't, you know, that you didn't have to wait, you know, a year or two years and, you know, you had to kind of serve your apprenticeship before you could play the campaign, that you could actually, you know, get into the campaign if you're a relatively new keeper. I would still advise, you know, maybe not having running it as the very first thing you run for Call of Cthulhu, but hopefully the new edition, by introducing a lot more, I guess, keeper advice and asides, to sort of say, this is how you might handle this. Or at this point, there is an option. And clearly stating that in the text and saying, these are the ways you could now go. Whether you're inexperienced or experienced, I find those really helpful. These little kind of pauses in the text to just sort of say, this goes to here. And to kind of build on that, one of the key things we kind of introduce in the in the new version of the campaign is at the start of every kind of key section within a scenario within the campaign we introduced a little bullet point list of links. So at the start of every section, there is a link that gives you every possible way you could get into this particular section. So if you're meeting an NPC, it will link all the various either player handouts, um, NPC references or clues that link to why the players should now be going to this person. So again, it's a kind of an internal map of the campaign that allows you to map your way through the various differing paths you know a, a group of players could take so effectively trying to uh, incorporate this kind of internal navigation within the campaign to be this kind of fairly easy fairly quick to reference uh, system that you can you know, as you say follow and map and map a route through the campaign more easily so you're hopefully never at the point where where we're here in the scene i have no idea how we got here you know you as a keeper can backtrack very easily and see exactly how they got to this point and similarly, there are clue diagrams in the text as well now. Um, those were there in an earlier edition, were they? No, they, 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 were, they were not done in an early edition. The Masks of Neolithic Companion introduced the idea of the, uh, the clue diagrams, which were, which were a cool idea. And uh, obviously, when we had rewritten the campaign and added in different elements and new elements, we decided to um, do clue diagrams, borrow the idea from the companion and uh, do new ones based on the uh, the revision of the campaign. In the old campaign, there was a, a table of clues uh, in each chapter, which kind of provided the similar function to the links I've just mentioned, but in one large table at the beginning of each chapter, which was, you know, quite useful, but not, I don't feel it was as user-friendly as it could be. So hence why they were broken down into individual links to specific elements within a chapter and bolstered also with the clue diagram which i think it presents people with two different ways of doing it for more visual people the clue diagrams may be more useful to them 
to people like myself who find list, long lists of information much more accessible, the link bullet points may be more useful, or a combination of the both. And and also those those visual quick references I find help uh, incredibly. I certainly when I run games I rely an awful lot on on diagrams and bullet point lists and stuff like that. And and to have those presented in the game as as easy reference, yeah, certainly it's the kind of thing I wish had been there in masks thirty five years ago when I first ran it. And speaking on, I mean, we haven't touched on this aspect yet, but this also plays into the idea of the kind of options and keeper advice that kind of runs throughout the campaign in the new edition is the uh, the fact that you can play it not only with, you know, regular Call of Cthulhu, but you can also use Pulp Cthulhu if that's your choice. And so where we present throughout the text a series of asides, many of them are boxed, uh, which are, you know, Pulp Cthulhu boxes, if you want, which provide... Further details for that scene in a pulp play, which might be increased number of bad villains or monsters or, or tougher monsters, you know, at the very base level of for pulp. But also what it provides is maybe alternate versions of the scene. In a pulp game, um, you may be wanting to kind of go in a certain direction, a much more kind of action and you know, high powered kind of version of the scene. And so we do present some kind of alternate versions of scenes in a pulp style. And again, if you're playing regular Call of Cthulhu, you can still look at the pulp boxes and think, actually, well, I actually really like the way that scene plays out in the pulp vein. I'm going to kind of steal the idea and kind of adapt the regular Call of Cthulhu scene version and add in some of the pulp stuff if I want to. And vice versa, if you don't want to go all high octane on this scene, you want to keep it more low key because that's the kind of the stage you're at in the game, then you can just carry on using the regular version while you're playing pulp Cthulhu. I think there's a lot of versatility there and, and, and it provides the keeper with a lot of options, but very clearly placed and clearly put. So it's not hard to work out what you want to do. You just present it with a couple of options and you can think, well, actually, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go with this one here. Yeah, and and with those pulp options, um, yeah, some of them were new bits that that allowed you to ramp up the stuff that was there, and in in some cases, the bit what we did was we took the default options that were in masks which is a famously lethal campaign and said right you know this really brutal thing that happens by default in the old versions of masks is now the pulp option and you know here's a slightly less deadly version that you can run in regular call of cthulhu if that's if that's what you prefer with that in mind i mean do we think that that masks is going to be as deadly as ever or is this going to be a, a slightly less of a meat grinder I think it still can be as deadly. As always, I preface this with it's the keeper's choice how deadly a scenario is. However it's written or not, it is the keeper's choice. That aside, there are still a number of momentous or climactic occasions throughout the campaign where doing something poorly or making a very poor choice is likely to to lead to you know negative circumstances for the for the investigators and possibly you know madness and death. So it's not in, in one sense. So in one sense, it hasn't been declawed. Whilst at the same time, in the original, the, there is a lot of lethality and, and a lot of it not in a climactic sense. I'm trying to think of an instance. And I can't think of one. But, but as an example, you know, crossing this bridge, which is really fairly unimportant in the campaign. But crossing this bridge, um, if you fail your dex roll, you've fallen off and you're dead. And those kind of instant deaths I, I just don't find satisfactory I don't think players find them satisfactory and I think in the long term they detract from the campaign and players become disengaged and and I know numerous groups who have got to that point who are on their 10th character and at that point in the game when that 10th character now then dies again they just become disenchanted with the campaign and the group doesn't finish playing it and I think it's a major issue for a campaign is that if you if the majority of groups never finish the campaign because their characters just keep dying all the time, I think that's a problem. I think, you know, people want to finish the campaign. You know, if you spent good money on buying the campaign, you want to get this full use of it. You know, at the same time, not saying, oh, you know, don't kill off the characters, you know, keep them all alive to get to the end. It's a balance of the two. Character death is important and plays a vital role within it with any kind of Call of Thulu game, whilst at the same time killing off every character all the time kind of ends the game prematurely. So I think it's important. It has the, the campaign still has claws, 
but uh, the claws have been sharpened to particular points in the campaign and, and filed down for some of the more mundane elements uh, and sections within the chapters. And yes, I think this this is where having the pop Cthulhu options comes in, because being able to play this as a pop campaign, Masks has always been a pulpy campaign. And I think you know, being able to play it in that that no holds barred way that you can with pulp without getting through, you know, a, a D6 investigators per session, you know, makes it into quite a different game. And Lynn, what would you go for now? Would you go for, if you were going to run it, would you run it with Pulp or would you favour like straight Call of Cthulhu? Well, as you know from me stabbing you in the back <laughs> last year at Necronomicon, it would have to be Pulp, of course it would. Oh, <laughs> I knew it would be, I knew it. <laughs> Lynn and I were on the Necronomicon panel last year and uh, the two of us were backing straight Call of Cthulhu versus Pulp. Weren't we, Lynn? <laughs> yes, yes, we were officially... <laughs> yeah but lynn showed her true colors as a pulp lover but i mean i i think this lethality is in part what made mask notorious and i wonder if ironically that's in some way responsible for mask's fame because people would talk about their crazy experiences of dying and going mad so i'm, I'm kind of glad that we we've kept some of that in you know it's not we haven't kind of neutered it i don't think there is still like real high points where character death is quite likely and you know insanity is very likely so that that's not stripped out but it's just been moderated a bit well, and I think, oh, you know, we're possibly overselling this. I mean, you know, that, that you know, we haven't neutered it that much. I mean, you know, there's, as Mike said, I mean, the, you know, some of the more pointless bits have, have been toned down. But, um, you know, I think if you're playing it as a straight Call of Cthulhu campaign and, you know, you want to keep that old meat grinder approach, then, you know, particularly by incorporating some of the pulp options into a straight Call of Cthulhu game, it can be at least as bloody as it ever was. Oh my god, if you're going to incorporate the pulp aspects into a regular campaign, that would be crazy, <laughs> wouldn't it? Uh, I mean, you could do it a little bit, but take some inspiration. But if you ran the pulp version with regular investigators, yeah. TPK every session or your money back. But yeah. <laughs> I hadn't even considered doing that, but yeah. Yeah, that would be good. You know someone's going to do that now, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to see that. Yeah. But, um, I mean, you know, then I, I, I'm, I'm really of two minds. I mean, I, I'd be happy to run it, you know, as Pulp Cthulhu. I'd be happy to run it as straight Cthulhu. And, and I think having it all now done and you know, having read it more times than I can even remember, the, the new version of the campaign... Um, I can see the the variances in terms of styles of play between the two types of play, and each has each has their very strong merits. And so, it, almost to a point now that I'm thinking, if it was myself and I had a you know a bunch of players who wanted to play the new campaign, I, I would I would ask them, how do you want to play this? Because both tracks are equally good, equally enjoyable, but it will come down to your sense of you know, do you want to be swinging from ropes over chasms and with tommy guns in your hand or do you want to be delving in dark alleys and scuttling around in the dirt you know what what is your preference and i think you know that that'd probably be my cue to the way it would go but but yeah i'm looking forward to kind of you know trying both out at some point again you know so certainly doing a pulp run would be uh, would be fun can you imagine running it for two groups in parallel? And just like on a Monday night, you run the pulp version. <laughs> on a Thursday night, you run the, the classic version. Y your brain would just get fried as a GM. But it'd be great seeing the contrast. And then one night, you turn up with the wrong notes for the yeah. wrong group. And well, <laughs> I've nearly done that. I've nearly done that. I, I was running two groups. And I was running the same campaign for both groups. But it was just straight called the Cthulhu. Not, it wasn't the distinction with pulp. But that was bad enough, me getting confused about who was where. <laughs> Nightmare. So one of the places that we've added material in is in the background research and the setting uh, material for the various chapters. And Lynn, do you want to say a bit about this? Because you seem to be a wizard for this job. Um, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I sit there and I Google stuff and I look stuff up. Um, but I don't know how you do it. You must have some direct channel to, I don't know what. 
I, I, th- I think you've got a time machine. That's that, that, that's the only explanation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trade secrets. <laughs> um, it's just something I really actually enjoy doing. To be fair, the way that we did this was we we sectioned it up and we each took a couple of chapters to be in control of because. Otherwise, I really don't know how on earth we would have done it. Our heads probably would have exploded if we tried doing any more than that because it is such a complexly interwoven campaign. Um, so it, it must be said when Mike said, which chapters do you want? I did pick the ones that I'd already done a whole load of research for in terms of background for other things, so China and Egypt. But... I just really enjoy doing all the historical reading and my brain seems to soak up weird, useless, random facts that, you know, might be quite helpful for this sort of thing. And yeah, you can Google stuff, you can find it. We are very lucky in the fact that we can do this now and we do have a whole load of information that's far more easily available than 30 odd years ago when masks was originally written when you had to go to a library and you had to hope that they had a reference book that touched on that particular topic and getting sort of weird little random bits of information about you know what air services there were to a particular given country at a particular time was almost impossible to get hold of and and it, it is just something that I find endlessly fascinating. And one of the things we did have to be very careful with with masks is providing enough information to give the keeper the confidence to ball their way through creating the, the atmosphere, the setting and making it rich enough for their players without just basically writing a historical travelogue. And something else you were very hot on was using the correct forms of names. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things, particularly with things like China, where you had at the time, you had the Wade Giles system of transliteration going, whereas now we use something called Pinyin. Trying to get things that would help the keeper create that sense of period without making it a lot of hard work for them. So one one of the things that we've done is we've tried to provide the Wade Giles version, but we've also provided the modern version so people know where it is they're actually talking about. So if they feel the need to go do a bit more research on their own, then they can do because they have the modern name for it and they can go and look it up without having to wade through all the historical stuff to figure out, well, do they, do they mean this place or do they mean that place? The other aspect that we've, uh, I guess, bolstered, uh, it was in the original, there was a uh, table of travel times across the various locations in the campaign and a few notes on travel. Uh, what we've done is we've kind of expanded that into an appendix at the back of the campaign, which gives estimated kind of uh, ranges of travel times uh, between the locations, which are normally all boats uh, because, you know, airplanes aren't crossing continentally in the uh, 1925. So most of them are boat times and, and they're arranged from a fast cruise line to a some tramp steamer so keepers are given a range to kind of vary depending on the mode of travel taken but what we wanted to do is expand on that a little bit more and that john french came in and did a little bit of work for me on, on kind of a throwing in some new ideas into the travel chapter so things like events while traveling because whilst in the main travel between locations is masks is very much a kind of rest period for the characters where they can, you know, recuperate hit points and, and, and whatnot. That doesn't mean they, there can't be things happening while things are travelling. Um, whilst at the same time, it's a balance to ensure that, you know, things happening during the travel don't effectively overshadow what's happening in the campaign. We're not, you know, creating another chapter in itself by the, with the travel. So what John quite eloquently did was to provide some ideas for things that could happen while travelling. Could, if you want as a group, become its own little sidetrack scenario or just little cameo scenes of uh, just to you know, maintain some sort of interest during the travel segments? The other aspect of travel we kind of built on was um, improving skills. Because obviously if, it's, if an investigator development phase is happening during the travel period where skill checks can be, uh, can be done, there's also the opportunity, as, as, was, you know, as is real, if you're on a cruise ship, there are classes, there are courses, there are things you can practice. You know, there, there is, you know, archery, there is other things. Uh, there is learning a new language. So uh, we wanted to incorporate that within the actual gameplay that 
there is some guidance for increasing skills or learning a new skill while traveling as well and that's all captured with the kind of details around travel in that appendix but everybody knows surely there are two things you want to do on a long ship voyage one practice your shotgun skills off the back of the ship <laughs> and the second one that, that combines perfectly with that is every evening go back to your room and read a mythos tome. Because <laughs> what can go wrong? <laughs> That's all I remember doing when I played. It's been, I guess, the best part of two years since we embarked on this project. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, how, how happy are we all with the way that this has come out in the end? Lynn, do you want to... Pretty happy. Um, I, I, I would say yes, happy. Um, we've kind of got to the stage with it now. It's Mike referred to this earlier. I think we've, we've all seen it that many times now in its various iterations that it's starting to lose a great deal of meaning when we actually yep. look at it. So I'm, I'm kind of quite looking forward to not having to think about it for a little while and then pick it up in a couple of years' time and then look over it and go... Oh, that's not half bad, actually. When I've completely forgotten what I did on it because I've been too busy working on other things and it's all sort of like disappeared out of my head. Um, at the moment, I think I'm still a bit too close to it to appreciate entirely what we've done. But, oh, it's a pretty book. It is so beautiful looking at it, seeing the proofs and everything. Um, and hopefully people will like what we've done with it. It's not going to suit everybody, but fingers crossed it will give new keepers and new players a bit more confidence to actually take on something of that magnitude and, and go and make it their own thing. What about you, Paul? Well, I had a break from it for a while, so I was able to come back to it afresh a while back when we were reading through the proofs. And coming back to it again, you know, it had faded a little in my memory, so Looking at it afresh, I was really impressed with not only the layout and the look and the artwork, but also reading through it, it just, it just seemed to read a lot easier and flow along. And, you know, I was gripped by that enthusiasm to play it or run it again. You know, I love the old campaign, but I think this new version, it's come out really well. And I think a lot of the credit to that is, is also down to the layout and the artwork and the organization, not just the, you know, I'm not just talking about the, the content, much of which, you know, is there in the old campaign. How do you feel about it now, Mike, that, you know, you, you're still very close to it. You've been steeped in it for a long time. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, while you, while you had you know, closed up the book some months ago and, uh, and we're off, uh, you know, uh, drinking cups of tea and enjoying yourself, I was, yeah. uh, <laughs> I've still been, looking over the pages every day more or less uh you know fine-tuning correcting proofing and and all the rest of it um and so yeah like like lynn has been doing as well who's been doing a, a sterling job of supporting that it's you know a big forest and you know, it's very difficult to see through it at the moment however the other week i was going through the text just inserting page references now that we've you know got all the pages laid out we know what what's where on what page number and I couldn't help from time to time just being drawn into the text. And I just start reading the context of the reference and I just start reading a section. And a bit like you, Paul, I was drawn into it again. I could see the wood <laughs> again rather than the trees or I could see the trees rather than the wood. And I was, I was, I was becoming engaged. I was like, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten we'd written that. I'd forgotten that bit in the thing. Oh, yeah, that's, that's great. Oh, yeah. And, and, it, and then it starts sparking up in your head about, oh, you know, when, when I come to run that scene, I'm going to do that. And, and um, so I got kind of excited again in that, in that way. So I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased. I think, I think we set out what we achieved to do, which is that, you know, I didn't want to create a new campaign. Yeah, because that would have been a lot easier to do. We'd have just said, okay, let's write a new campaign <laughs> and get on with it. And whereas actually revising a campaign is, 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 I think, a harder job because you want to remain true to the campaign and true to the original author's visions, um, whilst also by dint naturally incorporating some of your own ideas, but also, you know, but also just making the whole thing cohesive as possible. And I, I feel, I feel we did Larry and Lynn proud with it. I think I don't think we've changed the nature of the campaign. I don't think we've changed you know, the key core kind of climactic elements within the chapters. We've not changed the core conceit of the campaign uh, in that respect. So I think we've remained true to the, the original vision whilst adding some 
more diversity to it, adding some more layers and, and, and a little bit of depth here and there. Again, I often talk about polishing and honing things. I think, you know, I think we've done a good job of that in, in, in this regard. So I'm, I'm very pleased with it. And I think Paul's right in terms of the, the look of the, the two books that will form the, the whole campaign looks splendid. And Nick Nicario, who's done all the layout work on this, has done a great job. It looks great. The handouts um, have been recreated by Andrew Law, who's done a fantastic job of creating these kind of historically kind of aged and, and uh, different kind of documents and, and uh, images are dotted throughout. Uh, we've got various artists who've done a range of different kind of artwork styles. Uh, and, you know, art is always subjective. Some some of them people are going to love while the same people are going to not like some of the others. And, you know, but that's, that's by the by. They all are technically wonderful. They all represent what they're supposed to represent. Uh, yeah, very pleased. Very pleased with it. Yeah. Mike, you said how it was going to be two books. Roughly how big are these books going to be, would you say? Uh, it's a good question. I don't have an answer oh, for okay. but, Well, I do. I, do. I mean, I, I can't give you the page count off the top of my head, but basically roughly just shy of 300 pages in the book. Well, actually, the best analogy would be it kind of works out pretty much similarly to the Keeper Rule book and the Player Investigator Handbook. One comment I would say is you, they're probably coming quite handy for beating Niall Athetep to death with should you ever find yourself inside a pyramid with him. <laughs> so make sure you take your copy with you when you go on yes. holiday to Egypt. So that's what you're saying. Okay, good advice there from Len. Thank you. I think if you get enough of these together, you can actually recreate the Great Pyramid out of them. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Okay, after having just spent the last two years delving into the guts of Nyarlathotep and, and you know, rearranging everything, are you going to be doing this again uh, for any other classic campaigns in the near future? Or or you know, are you going to be taking a break from this and concentrating on new material? <laughs> uh, yes and yes and yes, really. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we, we, you know, I personally will be taking a break and concentrating on new material, which I've got stacked up next to me. Uh, but then again, I'm, I'm saying that the book I'm actually working on is is actually a <laughs> is a is a complete revamp of the old Terra Australis book. So uh, it has, I'm looking at it, it. Technically, is kind of a new book, but it does incorporate some of the older material. So I guess, in a sense, it is a it is an old an old book being redone. But having said that, the books after that. <laughs> Um, the next two books certainly are, are completely brand new, new books that I'll be working on. You know, I think it, it is inevitable uh, that uh, we will get round to uh, looking at a new edition of uh, Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth. I think the game is called Call of Cthulhu, so I think we should have a campaign where Cthulhu is in it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's, that's really important. I think so I'm, I'm very committed to, to looking at that. Beyond the Mountains of Madness is obviously a, a favourite amongst some of the community, and there's uh, I think there's a, a desire to uh, to look at a, a new edition of that. Nothing is off the table in that regard in terms of some of the old material, but uh, I think as I've always tried to say uh, since I joined Cozum, I don't want the Call of Cthulhu line to just be a greatest hits line. I think there are some greatest hits, and Masks is certainly one of them. Uh, that you know that we you know want to kind of bring back out and, and make uh, more easily available again. But it's got to be balanced with you know new content, new material that's that's pushing forwards, that's taking the game in new directions, bringing in new ideas, and uh, and just you know creating new experiences around the gaming table for people. So I think it, there should always be a balance. And so you know, as I say, you know, it, that, you know, we will do some old campaigns again, but you know, I'm balancing that with new campaigns such as the Curse of Seven, the Gaslight campaign, uh, which is a brand new campaign for Gaslight. Uh, we've got a new pulp campaign written by Chris Adair Smith. New stuff and old stuff in balance uh, is my answer. <laughs> yeah, because the thing it's um, this was I mean it's something I saw donkeys years ago when I was living in Toronto. But there was this wonderful advertising campaign by a TV company. Was it's not a repeat if you haven't seen it. And what we have to remember is that we are hopefully bringing new players and keepers in. So, yeah, for those of us who've been here since the year, these are old products, but for some people, they're not. So they hear about them. They hear about these amazing games that other people have had. So it's nice to be able to give them the opportunity to enjoy them, too, in an up-to-date format. 
and also I should obviously throw in that, you know, we've got a new campaign being written by Lynn, the uh, Children of Fear, which is a 1920s campaign. So I think we're doing all right on bringing new stuff out as well as the revamps. Okay, great stuff. Well, let's wrap this section up there. Uh, so big thanks to Mike and Lynn for joining us. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is that time once again when we thank all you lovely, wonderful people who have given us money via Patreon. The money that you donate to us makes this show possible. It pays for all our running costs, it pays for our time in researching and recording and editing, and generally fuels the podcast. So thank you to each and every one of you, and we have some new people to thank. Yep, we have two new people at the $1 level, the first being David Sokolowski. Well, thank you very much, David. Indeed. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, David. And also, our thanks go out to Chris Martell. So thank you very much, Chris. Yes, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Meanwhile, on social media... I see we have a new review on RPG Now. So Tim W. says, I've been listening to this podcast for a while now and find it much better than average. There is a good mix of general info and banter, along with really useful advice on specific elements of playing Call of Cthulhu. Well, thank you very much, Tim. That's, that's very kind of you to say. We've also had some feedback on our episode on survival horror, mostly over on G+, this time round. Justin Lowmaster on Google+, on our community there, said, An option, especially for a one-shot, Cthulhu or otherwise, where player characters die off, is to have monsters for those players to use. And yeah, I mean, I have seen one game where that is actually part of the mechanics. Um, it's a GM-less game I played a few times called Geiger Counter, where you collaboratively come up with a sort of survival horror scenario. As player characters die, the players who lose their characters basically become the antagonists, and it works really well. And Shane McLean makes the comment, I think survival horror can work beyond a one-shot, but you need to approach it with a few things in mind. And he lists three. One... It can't be all about one threat, it has to evolve. Two, there needs to be a way to deal with dead PCs. And three, you need to know when to stop. Dealing with dead PCs normally involves a bullet through the head and a shovel. Well, yeah, yeah, the shovel maybe, because the bullet through the head, if they're already dead, is a bit superfluous, right? But you want to be sure, don't you? Mm -hmm. And, And also, this is survival horror, you've got limited resources, so don't be so quick to discount cannibalism. And don't waste bullets either. It's a great Donna party there, yeah. <laughs> but I think the idea of it having to evolve is a good one. The threat yeah. is there, you fight against it, you struggle against it, but it kind of evolves and changes perhaps and adapts is an interesting idea. Well, I think you know, we, we see that an awful lot in, say, The Walking Dead, where the, the zombies aren't the main threat in there, they're background noise. I mean, sure, you, you have people dying because they get bitten by zombies, but... What happens is there's a variety of escalating and changing human threats that they come across. And that's where the real horror comes from. And Judd Goswick over on G Plus says, I think a key aspect of the horror in survival horror might have gotten skipped in this discussion. That is the horror aspect of what people do when forced to make hard choices. The monster or issue is just an excuse that uncovers the secret horror that when the chips are down or our veneer of civilization fades away and we are all savages once more. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that whole thing about us being three meals away from anarchy or whatever, that once things start to break down, we start to see different side to people. Three meals? <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, a light snack. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I, I think, though, this, this more specifically applies to post-apocalyptic horror, or you know, horror where civilization is broken down, which obviously you know, is, is definitely part of survival horror. But you can also have survival horror which has nothing to do with uh, apocalyptic circumstances, like the ritual. And if you want to join in any of these discussions on social media, if you come over to our website, blasphemoustomes.com, you'll find links to all our social media platforms from there. If you feel moved to give us a review on iTunes or any other platform which aggregates podcasts, we would be absolutely delighted. Well then, to wrap things up, let's talk to Matt for a little bit about some of the same things we talked to Mike and Lynn about. So Matt, you've played Masks. Well, we played it together. Um, Indeed. 
Our long-suffering keeper, Matt Knott, at the MKRPG Club ran it for us uh, directly after we played Escape from Innsmouth. We took along characters from that survived Escape from Innsmouth and then put them through the ringer in, in masks. Yeah, I think that was quite a unique thing to do, really, to have to go from one campaign to the next. Unique for me, anyway. I've not done that in yeah. other circumstances that I can think of. I, I enjoyed it a lot. So did the characters actually survive through Escape from Innsmouth and, and make it into masks? Two, two of us did. Oh, wow. And, and how long did they last in masks? My character died in Egypt. I think you and your character ended up surviving Egypt, but pretty much coming out broken and insane and made a cameo appearance later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the exception then, missing out half of the England chapter, did you then play most of, of masks? Yeah, we, we played the remaining chapters after that, yes. Then, with the idea that Masks is changing with the new edition, I mean, not not changing drastically, but are there any particular things in general terms that you would have liked to have seen done differently or, or handled differently in Masks? More setup would be nice. The campaign begins on a particular note. I think that note would have had more impact and more resonance if there was more build-up to it. Well, luckily, in the new campaign, that's taken care of. Hey. <laughs> And if you were to run Mask yourself, would you go for regular classic Call of Cthulhu rules or would you go for pulp Cthulhu rules, Matt? What would you? I know, I think I can tell by your face. <laughs> pulp. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the death ray, isn't it? Go, <laughs> it everything is solved with a death ray. Uh, is part of your reasoning there the fact that I mean, Masks is infamously lethal? Yes. Is that part of the attraction of pulping it up for you? Uh, just some of the set pieces in there as well. There's um, A lot of the chapters have this grand finale before you move on to the next one. And pulp rules just help play it out so much better rather than not being anticlimactic, but being, as you say, lethal to the point of you try and engage with said big set piece and you're, you're just dead. But we didn't get through so many characters when we played it. Oh, we think. got through a few. I remember one that had one role and then he died. <laughs> yeah, but me and you, I'm talking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We only got... I got through... I had one afterwards and that then took me right the way through to the end. Oh, wow. Are there any other campaigns that you particularly like to see revamped the way that Masks has been revamped? Well, the big one for me would be Beyond the Mountains of Madness because there's a lot of holes in structure, especially in the opening part of it that I think could serve with being fleshed out, being rewritten, and yeah, generally making a bit more engaging. It's got some good setup, but I remember from when we played it, it has a few issues that could be addressed with. I think a rewrite would help it a lot. So if you want to join us next episode, we'll be looking at Mask and Nalathotep from a different angle and looking at some of the spoilers and changes that are taking place in the new edition. But until then, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com Hello?